sociopolitical issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Welcome to the home for the politically homeless, the podcast for those of you who like your politics in colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, welcome. And if you like what you hear today, please tell one friend you think might like it too. This podcast grows exclusively by word of mouth, your mouth. You can also get a write-up on this episode and other issues of the day by signing up for my email newsletter at ydhty.com slash news. Now, before we get started, I want to give you all a Wyoming update. Uh, last week was a spectacular celebration over the state of Wyoming, finally joining the YDHTY family. I noticed they were absent this week, so if anyone happens to be near Wyoming and can do a wellness check, I would appreciate it. That out of the way, you may remember back in the June 23rd episode of this year when Ben Studebaker and I discussed the need for a new global monetary system to correct some of the power imbalances we've seen in the global economy over the past 30 some odd years. And I thought we were so smart. After our conversation, I started Googling on the subject and found there were two smart people who had already beaten us to the punch. For those who need reminding, the roots of the current global economic order go back to 1944 with the Bretton Woods Agreement, where 44 nations agreed to a series of policies which included ordaining the dollar as the world's reserve currency and setting up a set of rules designed to prevent the competitive deflationary tactics that led to the Second World War. And in this episode, I speak with Kevin Gallagher, director of Boston University's Global Development Center and professor of global development policy, and Richard Kozel Wright, Director of the Globalization and Development Strategies Division in the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development. Their new book, The Case for a New Bretton Woods, argues that an order originally designed to promote economic and political stability and shared prosperity has morphed into one of rising income inequality, political instability, and the potential for future economic ruin due to the effects of climate change. And they argue for a new economic order that focuses on the original intent of the Bretton Woods Agreement while also building safeguards that'll ensure a stable climate. I want you to pay close attention to the impact monetary policy, specifically US monetary policy, has on the global stage as it references some of the topics that we've discussed in prior episodes and some stuff we are going to be covering in upcoming ones. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. You know, we've talked a lot about Bretton Woods on a real high level on this podcast, but we've never really you know, dug into the wires of it. So can you talk about, number one, the, the intent behind the Bretton Woods conference and, and what the outcomes were? Uh, the world tried to come together in the late 1930s to put together a new economic system to try to get us out of the Depression, and it failed. And that exacerbated the ex Depression, made it more globalized, and ultimately played a role in the rise of right-wing populism around the world and world war. Uh, to the leaders of the United States and, and the United Kingdom and many developing countries as well, uh, in the midst of a war, 
1944, right? The war was not over. They said, we cannot make the same mistake twice. They got together and they said, we need to make sure that we have a lasting peace and that a lasting peace is also in part a function of economic stability and prosperity for all. And so Henry Morgenthau brought, uh, brought the world together up in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire in the summertime and put together a set of principles from which the international economic order or the international economic architecture was, was forged both there in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, and then in subsequent years, really leading to the International, well, international Monetary Fund, the World Bank, later, much later, the World Trade Organization, but the predecessor to that was something called the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, and a new dollar-based global economy, but one that was flexible, meaning that, that countries could stray from it in the pursuit of full employment, and that countries could buttress the boom and bust cycles of a one-currency economy through the use of capital controls. This is really what the impetus and the framework was. And Richard and I wrote this book because we're in a very similar situation now. Let's think about it. We are just a decade over, just over a decade uh, away from the biggest financial crisis of this century. And here we are in the midst of another war and a rise of right-wing populism, which in part it has to do with the lack of prosperity around the world. And we are calling for another Bretton Woods moment. We don't have MAGA hats. We don't want to go back to exactly what happened in 1944. But what happened in 1944 was a realization that markets had become unhinged from their productive use, from the goals of full employment and economic stability. And in the 21st century, those are still important goals. We need quality jobs for everyone around the world. But we also need to do it in a way that doesn't accentuate climate change. Climate change creates feedback loops, which also hurt our economy and cause financial instability and price spikes that uh, accentuate right-wing populism and the erosion of, uh, of our systems around the world. So we think that we need another moment, and that's why we wrote this book. Yeah. One question I had and one thing that, that stood out to me in your book that I didn't know prior is that the, the, the conference was structured, or at least originally, with the intention of shutting out private interests. So one thing I noticed is that there was great effort to keep private bankers out of the conversation. So the agreement was really structured for the public good, as opposed to for their interests. In, in what sense did Bretton Woods achieve that mission? And maybe in what sense did the existing power brokers write the rules that made up that agreement in the end? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, I think when you look at the discussions in Bretton Woods and the initial outcomes, I have to say it was successful. I mean, the Keynes himself, as you, was famously quoted as wanting the euthanasia of the rentier, right? And and that whole notion of a class of people who simply make their money from from clipping coupons and, 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 and speculative activities of, of one kind or another, of which Keynes himself was a master, ironically. But, but he had that in mind. And, and the Roosevelt administration, of course, had made the subordination of financial interests part of the New Deal. I mean, so on, on, that, on that point, I think there was real agreement between the UK and the US. There's a recognition on both sides that controlling the flows of international capital was a necessary part of a stable international monetary system that you couldn't really have a stable monetary international system if you allowed capital to flip flit around the world 
to make money how, where, and, and whenever it wanted. They need to be controls. Just to add some background and context, we have to remember that, um, that it was the financial sector and the deregulation of it by previous administrations to Roosevelt that, A, caused the financial crisis, right, uh, that, uh, the, and, and, the, and the Great Depression. And Roosevelt was largely elected to put that genie back in its bottle and to what, do what we're saying, right, reorient the financial system towards employment, production, and productive, productive investment. And so the Roosevelt administration itself was a coalition of productive capitalists, people who want to produce things, of workers and people who had lost their jobs, whereas the financial sector had, had, really, had really lost out. And, and that, was, that was one of the most important projects of, of that period to get the country back on, its, back on its feet. And so when Morgenthau tasked Treasury officials to, uh, to put together the, our proposals on the U.S. side to negotiate with the other countries, really tried to buffer them from the from the financial sector. Now, there's a great book by Eric Haliner called States in the Reemergence of Global Finance, which shows that some of the proposals in, in Bretton Woods did get watered down right at the beginning, largely because of pressure by the financial sector. And one of them was something that was going to be in the Articles of Agreement of the IMF that would have allowed or required countries to regulate capital at both ends. What does that mean for your audience? So we've talked about this concept of capital controls. What does that mean? Well, uh, that just means regulating the financial sector. And, you know, sometimes financial flows that go from one country to another will go to build a factory that'll produce goods and services that could either be for export or to serve the domestic economy. Sometimes it could be to speculate on your exchange rate or your stock market. Countries want to be able to regulate that so there's relatively less in stock markets and exchange rates, especially during boom time, so it doesn't cause financial stability, instability, and more towards those productive things like factories that put people to work and, and, and make people profits. That's what capital controls are. But both Keynes and White uh, and developing countries, of course, realize that, that just a developing country or even just France, if they put in capital controls on their end, that there might just be such an onslaught of speculative capital that it might not have as much of an impact as if it was done on both ends. And they, the original agreement or original draft said, you know what, the United States and the French or the Argentines should both have controls to make sure that financial flows go to productive capital on both ends of a, of a transaction. The financial sector was, you know, was very concerned about this because they knew it would have an impact on them, but it was intended to, as Richard said. And I think, you know, it's very important, you know, because there's a tend there can be a tendency just to suggest that, you know, it didn't really have much of a difference or the institutions. But but, you know, it left this legacy for the first time of having public institutions, international public institutions, that could lend money to countries both for short-term purposes if their balance of payments ran into trouble and could provide liquid liquidity so countries would not be forced into extremely austere types of reactions to a, a macroeconomic imbalance that they faced, and to longer-term uh, public finance for productive investment, for initially for reconstructing the U- European economy was the original idea that was shifted to the Marshall Plan, but for development purposes. So, so there had been no institutions ever before 
of global governance that were responsible for that kind of financial activity. It had all previously gone through private capital markets, one kind or another. So, I mean, it was an incredibly important legacy, I think, in that respect. And I think, importantly, and following from what Kevin said, these, were, these, these institutions, at least in principle, were not designed to dictate policy options to developing countries. They were really designed, at least in the minds of people like Dexter White and Keynes, to provide the international support for domestic policy agendas built particularly around the goals of full employment and a stronger welfare state. Development issues were not, Developing countries were part of the Bretton Woods negotiations, of course, but development issues were essentially secondary at best in the overall, in the overall discussion. But, but ha, you know, that idea of allowing countries the policy and fiscal space was a very important part of the original design. The pushback came quick, pretty soon. <laughs> you have to, have to admit the pushback against that, I mean, I would say, begins with the election of Harry Truman and, and the people that were put in charge of the World Bank and the, and the IMF by Truman were much more, I mean, to put it crudely, Wall Street friendly than mm. I think the, was the original intention of the designers of the the original designers. So am I hearing you correctly then? It sounds like Bretton Woods might have achieved its mission, maybe been a little too successful. And then the instant a lot of those institutions were implemented, there was a gradual chipping away by the financial sector at those regulations. I would, I mean, you know, in that sense, to some extent mirrors what was happening with the New Deal, right? I mean, there was Business and finance was very disorganized in the U.S., in the, or relatively disorganized in the 30s and the 40s. And it, as it became more organized again, and there's some great studies of this in the, from the, mid, in the, in the immediate after-war, post-war period, they began to push back against labor legislation and other things. And I think, I think there was a counterpart to that in the international sphere. I think you've got to remember that you know, if you take an institution like the World Bank, right, which was the bank for international reconstruction and development, because the Europeans wanted money to be able to reconstruct their economies from the devastation of the war, the World Bank did not do that job. That all that was completely ceded, of course, to the Marshall Plan. So the bank and the fund only really begins to operate seriously, I think, from the early 1950s onwards. And you begin to see from that pit quite early a pushback against, I think, a lot of the original intent of the designers of the, of the, of the system. But it was, was not enough to obliterate the value of the institutions that were, were, were put in place. To put it a little bit more simply, from the period after the Bretton Woods were established until the early 1970s was the most financially stable period in, in, in the 20th century. After the, one of the most unstable periods, the Great Depression, that the world had, had ever seen. I mean, it wasn't until the 1970s that we started to see what we have now, which is a financial crisis somewhere just about every three to five years in the world economy. And obviously, many countries right now are experiencing that. So on the stability end, it really helped usher in relative level of financial stability. Uh, and it was also, especially in the industrialized countries and some developing countries, one of the one of the largest and longest periods of economic growth, largely because there was there was stability. It allows uh, it allows growth to, to foster to foster more. 
Yes, it did accentuate some inequalities in, in places, and yes, it did start to start to erode. It, it was not perfect, and that's why we, we're not saying let's put on a MAGA hat and go back to 1944. What was important was that a there was a vision of an international economic order built on a set of principles that the economic system should be wired to a set of human goals and not just for a set of ends in and of itself, that the economic system should bring prosperity, it should bring full employment. And it was also an understanding that economics isn't in a vacuum, is that in so doing, we create a lasting peace. And with a lasting peace, you have more global prosperity and there won't be more war and conflict. And that is, we've lost sight of that. We feel like the system has, has really become unhinged with that uh, from that at this point and why we call for uh, that kind of a moment again. So where, where in history are we sitting now? Because you talked a little bit about the interwar period and how even in the 1930s, which I wasn't aware of, nations came together and tried to rewrite the, the global financial order. In terms of maybe if we're drawing parallels between the current era and the interwar period, where are we? Like what, what part of history are we in right now? I, th- I think we're at, in, in, we're at the 1944 point. We already, in 1933, there was something called the London Economic Conference hosted in, in the UK with the right impetus. We have a depression. We just had World War I. We don't want World War I to happen again. We want to get these people to get back to work and these economies back on, back on track. And it failed. They, 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 they did a little bit of window dressing and, and everybody went home. What happened? Depression became globalized, and we did have another world war. We had that chance in 2008, 2009, after the global financial crisis of this century, where, again, a little bit better of a job putting out the fire than they did in 1933, and a little bit of the revival of some of these institutions. But that quickly went away. And if you look at the rise of the Tea Party in the right wing in the United States, if you look at Erdogan's and, and all across the world, that you can trace a lot of it to the global financial crisis of 2008 uh, and the lack of a full-on response. Yes, we did put out the fire, but we didn't, to use what today buzzword of the day, we didn't build back better. And here we are again, just like in 1944. We're in the midst of a war. It's largely a proxy war now, and let's hope it doesn't get any larger. But given the fact that the world is so much more globalized and so much more interconnected, we're feeling it. Everyone's feeling it in fuel prices in food prices around the world, and in ever-increasing levels of debt, especially in the developing world, as we raise our interest rates here to try to cool things off and lower prices, investors have the freedom to pull all their money out of developing countries, which hurts their exchange rates, increases their debts, and boom, you have Sri Lanka and rising unrest there. And that's just one example, Ethiopia, Kenya, Lebanon. Ecuador, Argentina, which is seeing the whole world now, uh, have these kind, kinds of events. We're in 1944. We already made our mistake in 2008. The time to act is now. Yeah, I guess the other point there, which and lots of people kind of draw this parallel between the early, you know, the early 20s, as I said, was a period in which you had a declining hegemon, which was the United Kingdom, and a risen hegemon, which didn't really want to play that role in the case of the United States. 
And obviously part of the success of the post-war order was that by 44, it was clear it was quite clear who was in charge in terms of international economic relations, uh, the, the U.S., both in terms of its economic way and in terms of its own institutional and political sophistication, I think, was much more comfortable taking on that role in 44 than it was in, in 1920. And, and so a lot of people see the disturbances of the, of the interwar period as partly linked to that lack of a clear hegemonic leader that could act as a stable pivot point for the system. Now, the, you know, a lot of people are asking that question, are we in that, are we in that same moment now with the, with the United States declining to some extent in terms of at least in, certainly in terms of its economic weight? I would question whether it's, it's as sharp as a decline as, as the one that the UK con- economy faced in, in the interwar period. But with a, with a, I wouldn't call China yet in a hegemonic position, but you could make the argument that it's aspiring for a, some kind of, hegemonic role. And that is, you know, this confusion that brings in terms of clear leadership without cooperation between the two, which sadly is the the situation right now, then the worry is you get the form, you know, you get the the fragmentation, the formation of blocks, uh, which you saw in the interwar period as a consequence of that lack of cooperation that is essential for a stable international economy to work effectively. Something I've been trying to figure out after reading your book is whether now is like the best time or the worst time to pursue such an agreement. Because on one hand, you could say, like you said, Richard, we have an issue where China and the United States aren't getting along. United States, I, would, I wouldn't say is politically unstable, but certainly couldn't be mistaken for a steady ship at this point in time. On the flip side, we also have a period where maybe great powers are on an even enough footing where they'd be more inclined to negotiate than keep going down this path. What do you think the feasibility of of this happening is? I think it's important maybe, Dan, just to recognize that in our story, I mean, there's a very, again, like there's a very, I think, a simplistic narrative about the interwar period, about openness before then 20 years of closure that bred political diseases of one kind or another there's a there's another kind of simplistic story about the the post-war era in which something called the new international or the or the liberal international economic order was born at Bretton Woods and it's been slowly perfecting itself over the course of the last 75 years but but in fact that's not continuity is a very misleading way of describing the the post second world war two order because it was this fundamental break in the way in which the order was constructed when the original Bretton Woods system came under intense stress in the early 1970s and Nixon basically removed the dollar as the pivot of the of the international monetary system cut the connection with gold and then and then floated the dollar and that and that was the beginnings of what we've called this hyperglobalized world in which in which finance and, and, and financial activities and uh, footloose capital of one kind or another has become the driving force of the global economy in a way, I think, that was the opposite of what people like Keynes and Harry Dexter White and Morgenthau thought they were creating back in, in that. It's the opposite of that system, really, that emerged from the early 1980s. And as we know, and I'm sure you've talked about extensively in your podcast, one of the features of that system has been, is, is that it's been a breeding ground for inequality. 
inequality mm -hmm. has reached levels that we have not seen in both advanced and, and developing countries, you know, in, in, modern, in modern history, at least. And, that's, and there's now beginning to be a pushback against that. I mean, sometimes it take, takes perverse forms. I would argue some of the rise of Trump can be explained in those terms, and there's a perversity there in that respect. But I think the opportunity to, to kind of find a different kind of social contract because of these incredible gaps that have emerged across income groups in, across the global economy, I think does open up an opportunity because, and we would argue, and we argue in the book, because an unequal world is not only an unfair world, it's a very inefficient world too. It actually doesn't produce what promoters of this world said it would do, which is economic dynamism and entrepreneurship and loads of productive investment would follow in some sort of kind of grandiose trickle-down theory. And that's not happened, really. It hasn't happened. And I think, I think people are pushing back against that. And that, that, I think, provides a component of the moment to kind of revisit the international architecture with that in mind. And of course, the other moment that I think provides an opening of, is, of course, the threat that we might not be here as a species in 100 years' time. And when you put those two things together, the inequality problem and the existential problem, then, then you, there are real opportunities that have come out of that, that that I think do make this sense, the notion of a Bretton Woods moment more credible than I think, you know, was the case 10 years ago. One of the things that we all have to realize in the globalized world that we've created is that increasingly, as we're more connected, we have more issues with every, each other. Everybody does, right? And uh, mm -hmm. that's what foreign policy is mm -hmm. all about, right? We've got, we've got issues, let's work them out. But there's some things that are global public goods, go, a stable climate, stable financial systems, prosperity. These things, if it doesn't occur in one place, it can become globalized and hurt us all. So it's all in our self-interest to have a stable climate, a stable financial system, and to foster equitable growth. That is a global public good, and we all have to work together on that. If China doesn't, China and the United States don't do something on climate change, look what it's doing to everybody. It's hurting people in Europe. It's causing floods in South Africa. It's, you know, killing productivity in the most productive state in the United States right now, California. So it all hurts us. Same thing when there's a financial instability in the United States, it becomes completely globalized. When there's financial instability in Argentina, it goes to Brazil, it goes to Bolivia. Uh, these things need to be worked on together. And I, the problem right now is that everything's become conflated. The war, the conflicts among countries, development and so forth. And folks can't separate these things out. And it takes leadership, as Richard went to. The reason why the conference in London cracked is that the United Kingdom wouldn't take leadership. And the United States, I'm the American of, of these two uh, of these two authors, and 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 as an American, the U.S. has not stepped up to be a leader in the past three years with these crises. It was just horrendous under the Trump administration, where he left G20 meetings to go play golf. The Biden administration, to its credit, did step up and issue what are called special drawing rights, six hundred and fifty billion dollars worth of, let's call them for the sake of things that can be converted into dollars that you can you can use to pay debts and in, in a variety of ways that, that did 
uh, provide a, a big shot in the arm for a lot of developing countries. And now there are more multilateral conversations going on because of the war uh, than there have been in, in decades. And let's broaden those conversations to realize where the origins of all this comes from and to realize that this is an opportunity where people are talking about war. There are There is a debt crisis. Everybody's in the same room, but they're just putting out the fire. And we are trying to light a fire under all those folks by saying, since you're talking about this, that, and the other thing, let's put it all in perspective and reset our goals. We don't necessarily think that we can all go lock ourselves in a room in three weeks like they did in Bretton Woods and come out the other end with a whole new international economic order. But there's lots of opportunities in the world stage to have incremental change over the next half decade or so that would get us there. And obviously all these conversations that are having about the war are the place to start. You might argue that one of the weaknesses of Bretton Woods is that it really made the dollar sort of a single point of failure for the entire system. So the entire system depended on U.S. presidents doing the right thing, which doesn't always happen, as we know. To a, to a certain extent, uh, Richard and I talked about this a lot, and we tried to say, you know, what's we, we, the fundamental premise of this book is to try to be ambitious, right? We are not in the middle of this, and so mm-hmm. we and we our respective institutes and institutions have done a lot of research that documented the problem. And we wanted to be ambitious and we want to sort of be fundamental and say we need some fundamental change. But then we also had to ask ourselves, what's the time, time frame? And, and we really, really think of this book of like uh, what needs to be done by 2030. Right? We need to reduce emissions by, 20, by 50 percent and, and not just from a mitigation kind of standpoint, but we need to rewire the rules of the economy to have a low carbon economy that gets us there that's also more socially inclusive. It needs to be stable and so forth. And so we don't see politically, we acknowledge that, uh, you know, a single currency for the, a single sort of key currency for the world has benefits and costs, and for, especially for emerging market and developing countries. For some of them, sometimes the, benefit, the, the costs are higher than the benefits. But we, we did actually not call for a new currency or for a full-on basket of currencies for, uh, for the world in the, in, the, in the next, in between now and 2030. We, we, we said, well, we're going to have to live with, live with the dollar, but we're going to have to regulate it a lot better. We're going, to have, we're going to have to have that same spirit that we had in the 1940s, and we're going to need to really regulate capital markets, right? We're going to need to regulate the use of the dollar to, for, as, an, as an example, right? Right now, uh, as you said, can't always count on responsible U.S. policy. Well, the U.S. is raising interest rates at a, at a steady clip. There's a, there's a massive debate about the extent to which that's responsible. Uh, regardless of whether it's responsible or not for inflation in the United States, it is a big concern in developing countries. When you raise the interest rate in the United States mm-hmm. and the United States, as I knock on wood here, has always paid its debts, and it has the dollar, uh, all dollar-denominated assets around the world, as they see the world being risky, they will fl- they will stop and fly back, you know, pull their money out and fly back to the United States because there's a higher return because of the higher interest rates, and it's considered a safe haven. And when that happens, uh, when you pull money out of the rest of the world, it reduces demand for things that those countries offer. And that makes their exchange rate depreciate, meaning 
number of pesos or the number of rand that an Argentine or a South African needs to be able to buy a dollar's worth of something uh, costs more and more. And that really means their debts as well, because even though your currency, your peso or your rand may depreciate by 20 percent, you still owe the same amount of dollars. And one of the big things that's happening now with the rising interest rates and the uncertainty around the war in the industrialized world, especially in the U.S., is there's massive, massive capital flight away from poor countries, which is exacerbating a debt crisis. And we we don't really connect all those dots all the time. But that's a big reason why people have just toppled the government in Sri Lanka and that they almost did in, in Ecuador a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and it's fomenting unrest around the world financially and politically. I agree with Kevin. And the idea, there's a big debate going on about whether the dollar is somehow in decline in some absolute sense. And that's clearly not, I think it's clearly not the case. But there are changes going on that I think we need to recognize. And there are growing regional financial arrangements that we're seeing. I mean, the euro being obviously the, the kind of biggest of those, but we're now seeing similar types of things emerging in developing countries, which which I think is a positive step forward that we will see more of, I suspect, particularly in developing countries, given the way in which their, their need to borrow in dollars exposes them to very potentially deep economic shocks and, and, and problems. So even as the dollar remains the dominant currency, I think we will see more of that happening. Of course, the other the other thing, and it's a bit of an irony, really, when Nixon broke the link with gold in in, in uh, 1971, I think it was, there was a, a lot of the people around Nixon thought the special reserve currency that the IMF could issue, this idea, this special drawing rights that is, a, that is an asset, the reserve asset the IMF uh, issues, could actually, to some extent, complement the role of the dollar as an important source of international liquidity. I mean, I mean, Volcker, for example, who was an advisor to Nixon at that time, was a was a big believer in in, in the potential of special drawing rights in that respect. Didn't didn't play out in like that in the end, but but the special drawing rights are still there as an important part of the international finan- financial system and an important potential source of international. Liquidity, And we saw that last year when $650 billion were agreed to, a new allocation of special drawing rights for $650 billion was agreed to by the IMF as a way of easing some of the financial pressures that particularly developing countries were facing as a consequence of the COVID shock. Now, there are lots of reasons why it didn't really do the job, not least the fact that special drawing rights are allocated to IMF members based upon their their quota, the amount of money that they have to pay into the system. And that's biased very heavily in favor of advanced economies. So the economy, the economies that got the special drawing rights were not necessarily the economies that needed the special drawing rights. But as a, but as a tool for improving the, the, the workings of the system, it, it's there, it's usable. And I think there's a real case to be made, and we make that in the book, that we should be using it much more than we are at the moment. So so it's not an argument that the dollar's finished. I don't that's just not credible. But there are these other aspects of the international monetary system that I think are likely to to grow over the coming years that will make for a a more balanced if you like financial system mm-hmm. and one that we would hope at least from where I'm coming from 
works a bit more effectively to support developing countries in particular. It seems as if, and and you can both correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems as if the global south or developing economies were really left out of Bretton Woods in a way, and, and were sort of an afterthought. What do you think needs to be done to ensure they're not left out of the conversation this time? It's, it's an, I mean, Kevin mentioned earlier, excellent political scientist called Eric Halina, who's worked extensively on this. He wrote a very nice book called The Forgotten Origins of Bretton Woods, where he does show for the for the original designers, particularly those coming out of the, if you like, the, the kind of left wing of the New Deal, they they were very cognizant of the need to to bring a development dimension into the international financial architecture. And that was particularly based upon the relationships between the US and Latin America. Roosevelt had this good neighbor policy, which he introduced when, after he took office, was a, which was about building better relations with, with Latin America rather than the kind of neo-colonial relations that had essentially evolved from the, from the late 19th century and he shows in the book that, in fact, development issues were were important. That part of the of the coalition behind behind Bretton Woods, I think it's true that that was that was ditched to some extent during the negotiations and and, and subsequently. One of the big issues that was lost as a consequence of that, I think, from the original architecture was the was how we handle sovereign debt problems, essentially. Those problems in Bretton Woods were, were dealt with in an ad hoc, in a much more ad hoc manner. The big one that the international community in the late 40s and early 50s had to deal with was German, was ger- the German debt problem, right, which was inherited from the interwar period. And, and Germany was given huge debt relief. In the, 50% of its debt was essentially wiped out. In, in an agreement that was finally reached in London in, in 1953. But as a consequence of there was no there was no multilateral architecture to deal with countries that have borrowed heavily and then run for whatever reason, some of their own making, some because of the inconsistencies of the global economy itself, run into problems about repaying those. We don't have a you know, we just don't have that system to, to deal with with that kind of problem. Many countries because bonds are issued on markets in New York and, and London, for example, law, the law of New York and London dictates the way in which debt problems are, are, are not resolved. There's no multilateral system to deal with, with, with debt problems. And that's a huge weakness. And there, is, there has been a long-standing push, including by my organization, UNCTAD, to argue for and fight for a multilateral system that would put in place a set of rules that dealt with the creditor and the debtor side of a of a of a debt crisis in a swifter and fairer way than happens today and if you don't do that we can see what happens part of the problem with sri lanka is that problem it's defaulted on its debt and the system simply can't work in a fast enough way to be able to work Sri Lanka through that problem in a way that doesn't cause the kind of economic and political collapse that is essentially what we have seen, unfortunately, in, in the case of Sri Lanka. It's a system that essentially, on the debt side, is very heavily biased in favour of the creditor 
and historically has always, even when it's done, even when it has actually been able to pursue some sort of debt relief, has always done so too little and too late. And I think that missing component of a multilateral financial system is a major source of weakness and a particularly sore point for developing countries today, many of whom, because of the COVID shock, now because of the actions of the US Fed and the slowdown of the global economy, are on the brink of a debt crisis. And in that sense, Sri Lanka, we worry at least, is the canary in a very dangerous coal mine. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please leave it a review. As I mentioned before, this podcast grows by word of your mouth. You can also find Richard and Kevin's book via the link in the show notes or wherever you buy your books online or in person. We don't judge. And you can find a write-up of today's episode and other issues of the day by signing up for the YDHTY email newsletter at ydhty.com slash news. Now, the big takeaway here is that economic stability equals political stability, and the influence the U.S. dollar has over global markets means we need to tightly monitor our financial sector to prevent rampant speculation from destabilizing other countries. And we talked about this in the June 9th episode with Cullen Hendricks, where he mentioned how changes to commodities regulations in the United States led to increased speculation in food markets and price spikes in developing countries. Now, more recently, as Kevin and Richard cited, the Fed's response to inflation here has led to money flowing out of developing markets, creating instability in Kenya, Sri Lanka, Ecuador, and other countries. Now, second interesting piece was Richard's comment that a lack of a hegemon in the interwar period created a leadership vacuum that allowed World War II to happen. And we may have seen this sort of crisis averted when NATO made the decision to engage in the war in Ukraine, but it does give us a warning as to the damage more isolationist tendencies can do. Now, the last is the importance of a stable climate. And many of the countries most at risk from swings in US monetary policy are also most at risk from the effects of climate change. And both are things they have little power to change and they've derived little benefit from. And we can begin to see some trickles of resentment from the developing world as the problems get more dire. And it seems as if we dodged a bullet after the financial crisis in 2008, and we've managed to hold the world together. As I've said from the outset of this podcast, what we do in this decade will determine a lot. As always, music courtesy of QuellerTac, YDHTY's Director of Continuous Improvement is the admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Oh, bye-bye.